Good morning. If you will grab your Bible and find Acts chapter 2, we will be continuing our series in the book of Acts called Unstoppable. We're starting this series through Acts, and as you read through the book of Acts, you really get this impression that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Nothing hinders the, the advance of the gospel. Uh, Christianity grew from uh, about 120 disciples of Jesus, and we're going to see where the church and the Christian movement began today in Acts chapter 2, but it grew from that, about 120 disciples of Jesus 2,000 years ago, to 2.3 billion people in the world today who are Christians, almost one out of every three human beings alive on planet Earth are Christians today. And so um, how did it come? How did it start? That's what the book of Acts is all about. Um, And while you're finding Acts chapter 2, I want to tell you a story uh, about probably either maybe the the most powerful experience I've ever had with God or it's least in the top three it was not the most powerful uh, encounter with God I've ever had. Um, when I was in college, I was volunteering with the youth ministry uh, at, our, at our church in Quincy, Illinois. And uh, the church was blessed by God to be able to, to uh, have a, an old factory building. So we had the church, uh, the church building, and then a, a couple of blocks away we had a, this old factory, and we refitted it to be a youth center for the youth group. So, it, I mean, it was, it was pretty neat. We had pool tables and foosball and ping pong and a rock climbing wall and, and a lot of really cool stuff in, in this giant old factory. And we did all this work to, to sort of refit it out for student ministry. And my particular area to volunteer in was with the youth band uh, and leading the, leading the worship. And so the very first practice that we had at this new youth facility um, it, we had just finished all the construction, we had just installed the sound system, and we got all the, the youth band together and all the youth leaders together, and we were going to practice uh, for the first youth group. And it, the first youth group was yet another week or two away, but we were kind of breaking in the new facility and working out the kinks in the system. And while we were practicing, in about 15 or 20 minutes, you know, two or three songs into our practice, it changed from practicing to worship because because the holy spirit fell in that place and he his presence was as thick and as heavy as i have ever experienced in my life Uh, in fact his presence was so heavy that before too long almost nobody was standing most people were on their knees some people were laying down face down uh in f- before the Lord in prayer and we ended up what, sh- what, what should have been like a, an hour long practice of, of three or four songs uh, became about three hours of worship and prayer as God just came into that place. It was powerful, it was heavy and this was the very first time that we were playing music there. The very first time that we were preparing to worship God. Uh, it's easily probably the most powerful experience of God's presence that I have ever had. Uh, we couldn't stand. He was so heavy in the room and I, I look at that as kind of like God was sanctifying that place and that time for ministry and there were many amazing things that happened in that youth group during those few years that I was there. Uh, The youth pastor 
His name was Joey. He mentored me. He helped me quite a bit. But uh, he, he taught the kids and discipled the kids. That youth group turned out, uh, some of the kids went to South Africa and became full-time missionaries. Some of the kids became uh, pastors. Some of the kids became worship leaders. Uh, a lot of the kids went out into their workplaces with a missionary mindset. I'm going to work in a factory. I'm going to be a construction worker, but I am on a mission for Jesus. And they were sharing the gospel with their coworkers and bringing people to faith. This, it, was, it was amazing. It's one of, the, one of the most formative times in my life to be in volunteering in ministry. And it was one of the most powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit I have ever had. So much so that I could not physically stand up his presence was so heavy in the room now when you hear a story like that what is your initial reaction do you think wow God is amazing wow that's really cool wow look what God did or is your initial reaction yeah is that really true does, does God really do that? I mean, I've never experienced anything like that. Does God really show up that way? Are you, are you a skeptic or are you a seeker of truth? And there's a difference between being a skeptic and being a seeker of truth. Our society kind of prides itself on being skeptical of everything. And, and we disguise our skepticism as seeking truth. But, but there's a difference. A skeptic starts from a position of unbelief. A skeptic says, I will start out choosing not to believe and I will require the Bible or God to prove himself to me before I choose to believe. That's, that's the position of a skeptic. A seeker of truth says, I am interested in learning and understanding the truth even if it challenges everything I have previously held, even if it challenges every idea I previously had, even if it requires me to change the way I think or to change the way I live, but I am interested in learning and discovering and understanding the truth. That's a seeker of truth. A skeptic says, I'm not going to believe anything unless you can prove to me beyond all shadow of doubt, that it's true. So the question is, when you hear stories about miracles, when you hear stories about God's spirit being poured out on his people, when you hear stories about God speaking directly to somebody, uh, are you a skeptic or are you a seeker of truth? In Acts chapter two, God poured out his Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. He did something incredible and amazing and people responded in different ways. Acts chapter two, verses 12 through 13, show us the two different responses. We'll look at, the, we'll look at what happened in a moment, but I wanna put up the two responses. Uh, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So we're gonna see what brought them to this reaction, to this response, but you can see the two different responses. The first people are seekers of truth. They're amazed, they don't quite understand it, but they want to. What does this mean? What does this, what is this? What is happening? What does this mean? The second group 
are skeptics. They mock. They're not interested in actually discovering what is true and what is real. They just want to make fun of it. They just want to choose to believe it. And that is the challenge for all of us this morning as we read through Acts chapter 2 and as we walk through our faith journey with Christ, the challenge is this. Are you a skeptic or a seeker of truth? As we read this passage, let the Holy Spirit convict you and challenge you on this question. Are you a skeptic or a seeker of truth? Let's see what happened that brought people to these different responses. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, we'll pause there. <laughs> Let, let's just set the background. Jesus had ascended into heaven. Right before he left, he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait. This was after his resurrection. He said, go and wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which my Father promised to send you. Don't, don't go out on this big mission that I've given you to. Don't go out and start the church just yet. Go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. So they went and they waited for 10 days, constantly praying together around the clock for 10 days. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed, and they waited on the Holy Spirit to come. Then, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God poured out his Holy Spirit with miraculous signs and wonders. The sound of a blowing wind, a, a strong wind, tongues of fire that set on each of them. And the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak other languages that they had not previously learned. Right? So all these miracles were happening as the Holy Spirit was being poured out. Verse 5, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday, and Jews from all over the, all over the world would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. So it just happened that there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven in Jerusalem. Verse 6, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. This event is a turning point in human history. It is, it is a change in God's salvation plan. It is a step along that process. 
and it is the moment at which the Holy Spirit was given to all of God's people. And it came along with miraculous signs and wonders. The question is, are you a skeptic or are you a seeker of truth? How will you respond? And I want to pull out three implications from this story that have challenges for us. And we're going to talk about three things. The Spirit, the church, and the world. The Spirit, the church, and the world. Three implications from this story. Here's the first one. The Spirit has been given for you. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God to all of his people. That includes you and me. The Spirit has been given for you. This was the first time in human history, this day on, of, of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, this was the first time in human history that God's Holy Spirit was given to all of God's people. Before this day, in history, the Holy Spirit was temporarily given to a few select leaders of God's people. He wasn't given to all of God's people. The Holy Spirit was given to the leaders, to the prophets, to the priests, to the kings, to, to empower them to lead God's people. But now, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given to all of God's people, everyone. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. Now, what is it exactly that happened? Acts chapter 2 is one of the most um, debated, one of the most controversial, one of the most misunderstood, one of the most misinterpreted, one of the most misapplied passages in the whole of the Bible. So, so let's take a few minutes just to kind of dig into Acts chapter 2 and really look at what is it exactly that happened on this day because there is so much confusion surrounding these events I think it would be helpful for us just to, to get some clarity. Uh, Acts chapter 2, what is it that happened? Well, it's pretty clear that Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1. Jesus promised that this would happen. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus says this to his disciples, uh, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? What is that? Well, Jesus actually told them a couple of verses later, in, in verse 8, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus talking about? It's right there in the very immediate context. To be baptized in the Spirit, Jesus says, means to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. So Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of what Jesus said there. In just a few days, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Just a few days later, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, Acts chapter 2. It's the fulfillment. But I want you to look closely, just for a minute, look closely at Acts chapter 1 verse 5 
and compare it with Acts chapter 2, verse 4. I put this on the screen. Here's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. In a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But here is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Here's how it's reported in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what is the difference between being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are those the same thing? Are they different? Well, it's pretty clear right from the scriptures right here that, that Luke is using these terms synonymously. He's using them interchangeably. Uh, he, he's talking about the same thing. In fact, if you do a study of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both books written by the same author, Luke, if you do a study of, how, of what Luke is talking about, you'll find that he uses the phrase filled with the Spirit many times throughout the book of Acts to describe this experience that Jesus talked about, the experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon a follower of Christ with special power to enable them to be a witness for Jesus. Uh, actually, Luke uses several other phrases to describe that experience of the Holy Spirit's power. He talks about being filled with the Spirit. He talks about being full of the Spirit. He talks about being led by the Spirit. He talks about being in the power of the Spirit. He talks about being anointed by the Spirit. He's talking about all these things to describe the same experience. One commentary put it this way, in the early chapters of Acts, Luke refers to the promise, the gift, the baptism, the power, and the fullness of the Spirit in the experience of God's people. The terms are many and interchangeable. The reality is one, and there is no substitute for it. He's talking about all, he's using all these different phrases, all these different terms to describe the same thing what Jesus described in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Luke says that is to be filled with, to be full of, to be led by, to be baptized in, to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. That experience of the Holy Spirit's power. So if we're asking the question, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Because that term has been confused and different branches of Christianity interpret it different ways. Well, if we're asking the question, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We have to say this, for Luke, for Luke, as he describes it in the book of Acts, for Luke, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the first time the Holy Spirit comes on a believer with power to be a witness for Christ. The very first time the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody who's a follower of Christ and gives them special power to be a witness, Luke says that first time is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every other time after that, he talks about it, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But the very first time, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, as we've seen in Acts chapter 2, it's often accompanied by signs that point people to Jesus. All signs point to Christ. And many Christians refer to these signs as gifts of the Spirit. Have you ever heard that term? Or manifestations of the Spirit. These signs that point people to Jesus that come along with the Spirit's power that enable us to witness are called 
gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the Spirit was accompanied by three miraculous signs. It was, it was uh, the, the, bl- the sound like the blowing of a violent wind, something that looked like tongues of fire that came to rest on each of the disciples, and the ability to speak languages they hadn't previously learned. Three miraculous signs that all pointed people to God that were accompanying the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the questions that I think we really have to address, if I haven't experienced that, does that make me less spiritual? Am I somehow kind of a second-class Christian because I haven't experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The church that I grew up in uh, taught that if you hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues specifically, you weren't even saved. And, and the church that I was in uh, later in life taught, uh, they, they, they wouldn't say it this way, but this is really how everybody acted. There were two classes of Christians in that church. There were the spirit-filled, spirit-baptized Christians, and then there was everybody else, the poor schmucks who didn't really know God even though we had faith. So if you were one of the spirit-filled, baptized Christians who had spoken in tongues, boy, you were someone special in that community. And if you hadn't done that, you were kind of a peon. <laughs> you know, is that, is that true? Is that how we're supposed to be? No, absolutely not. If you haven't experienced this experience of the, of the Holy Spirit's power, whether it's with tongues or some other sign, if you haven't experienced that, it doesn't make you less spiritual. It doesn't make you a second-class Christian. In, in, in the scriptures, spiritual maturity is always measured by the fruit of the Spirit, not by demonstrations of spiritual power. Spiritual maturity is always measured by the fruit of the Spirit. You can see that in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus, and that is what is a measure of true spirituality, of true spiritual maturity, not whether or not somebody can heal the sick or give a prophetic word or speak in tongues. Those are not signs of spiritual maturity. The, the way to tell if somebody is growing in spiritual maturity is to ask this question. Are they becoming more like Jesus all the time? If I've never spoken in tongues, am I a second-class Christian? No. How do I know if I'm spiritually mature? Am I becoming more like Jesus all the time? That's how I know if the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. And really, the Holy Spirit, I want to talk, uh, uh, just explain three ways that the Holy Spirit works in our life, three experiences of the Holy Spirit. Th- the first one is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that all of us receive at the moment of salvation. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in your physical body. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Every single follower of Jesus has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in them at the moment of their salvation. Another experience with the Holy Spirit is this, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. 
As he dwells in your heart and in your life, he slowly, over time, throughout your entire life, makes you more and more like Jesus. He produces the fruit of the Spirit in you over time. He transforms you. He changes you. It's the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts you of sin. He calls you to repentance. He helps you become more like Christ. And, and, and the third experience of the Holy Spirit is the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. This is what's described in Luke chapter two. This is what Luke calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit the first time it happens. This is the infilling power of the Holy Spirit that comes upon you at a specific moment in time and enables you to be a witness for Christ in that circumstance, in that situation. Sometimes the infilling power of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by very sensational signs like like it was in acts 2 speaking in tongues or seeing a vision sometimes it's accompanied by very sensational signs but sometimes it's not sometimes it's really normal sometimes it's it's a still small voice almost you can even miss it if you're not careful it's not always accompanied by sensational signs but sometimes it is um, now, I, I thought a good way to illustrate this was to, uh, to tell a story. And I was going to tell a story about Corinne, my wife. But uh, she doesn't like for me to talk about her uh, in my sermons. And so I could get away with it today because she's downstairs teaching in LV Kids. <laughs> but I won't. I won't tell a story about Corinne. Instead, I'm going to tell a story about a stunningly beautiful, wonderfully amazing pastor's wife I know. <laughs> Corinne has a gift. Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to say her name. <laughs> Corinne has a gift in prayer. And, and I have long, for years, I have just been blown away at when she prays, when she prays for me, when she prays for other people. She seems to have... I, some kind of an ability to pray for people that I don't that I don't have, and so I asked her one time, "What? It, how do you how do you come up with the things to pray for people? Because when I pray for somebody, I'm like, okay, you know, God bless uh, Jack. Okay, that's done. What's next? You know. But she's like praying all these things and praying all these specific things, and, and I'm I say, how do you come up with that? And she said, sometimes when I pray for people. Sometimes when I pray for people, not all the time, but sometimes, it's almost like there are words just going right across my brain. And she said, I have all these thoughts about what I'm supposed to pray for them. And she said, I don't know where they come from. They're just thoughts that suddenly come to my mind and I just speak whatever words are coming into my head. And I'm praying for that person and she's like, and then it, and then it shuts off and so I stop praying. And she said, it doesn't happen every time, but sometimes it happens. And she said, I don't know what that is. And I said, I do. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not sensational. The earth isn't shaking. There isn't fire and smoke and lightning. Nobody's speaking in tongues. Nobody's flopping on the floor like a fish. Nobody's seeing gold dust like fly around in the air. But the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to her, giving her things to pray for that person, things that she would never think of on her own. It's not always this big sensational thing. Sometimes it is but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pretty normal. Now, the question that I have is, what does this mean? What does this mean? Same question that they asked 
in Acts chapter 2. What does this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that we should be open to experiencing the power of God in our lives. If the Holy Spirit has been poured out to all people, and now all of Christ's followers, all Christians, can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, can be filled with the Holy Spirit to, to be a witness for Christ, then we should be open to the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We should be open to experiencing the power of God in us. Whether you call it the gift of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, whatever terminology you want to use to describe it, it is for you and me. And we should be open to experiencing the power of God. He's not going to override our free will. If we're not open to his work in our lives, he won't do it. The question is, are you a seeker of truth or are you a skeptic? Are you open to the Holy Spirit working in you? Are you open to experiencing the power of God in your life? Even if it's not super sensational. That's the first point. The Spirit is given to you. The second implication from this text is this. The church, the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. I would love to take credit for saying that. That's such a cool little saying. But it came from a pastor named Larry Osborne. I heard him speak at a conference and he talked about this. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. This is it. See, see, I think all of us can acknowledge the world is a mess. The world is a broken, sinful mess. All you have to do is read the news. I don't even like to read the news anymore because it is depressing. We are not progressing. We are devolving, right? Humanity is not getting any better. And, and nobody has been able to correctly identify the problem with the world except God in the Bible. See, a lot of people think, well, if we only had more education, if we only had more scientific advancement, if we only had more technology, then we could create the perfect world. We could get rid of all the problems in the world. If we only had more social justice, then all the problems of the world would go away. But that's not true. Every time we have more education, it gives us more words to use to hurt other people. Every time we have more scientific advancement and technology, it gives us more ways to hurt and destroy other people. Every time we try more social justice, another group springs up, another this springs up, another that springs up, and it, it, it diverts our attention. We can't do it. The world is not getting any better. The world is a broken mess. The Bible diagnoses that mess as sin. We are sinners. God created the first two people, Adam and Eve, and they sinned. They disobeyed God. Because of their sin, the whole world came under the curse of sin. And now, all of Adam and Eve's descendants, all of us, are born sinners. We are broken people. And we will choose to sin because we are sinners. I don't, I, 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 I'm not a thief because I steal. I steal because I'm a thief. I don't I, 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 I lie because I'm a liar. I'm not a liar because I lie. 
I lie because I'm a liar. And, and that's very obvious if you had kids, right? First time your kid tells a lie, you think, where did he learn that? One and a half years old, already lying. Why? Because he's a liar. Because we're sinners. Because we need a savior. And God sees the mess that we're in, but he, he didn't want to leave us in that mess, in that broken state where people are hurting each other, where people are killing each other, where people are, are, are starving one another, where people are going to war with each other. God said, I, that's not the way I intended the world to be. So God put together a plan of salvation that unfolds itself over thousands of years of human history. That plan started with Abraham. God chose Abraham, and he said, I am going to to make a nation out of you. Your children will become a nation. When God spoke to Abraham, it was through a miraculous vision. And Abraham and his wife Sarah were both too old to have children, but God miraculously enabled Sarah to conceive a baby named Isaac. And Isaac's offspring, his children, became the nation of Israel. God's chosen people through whom God was going to save the world. But Israel, one thing led to another, they ended up in slavery in Egypt. So God called up Moses, his servant Moses, to be a deliverer of his people out of slavery in Egypt. When God called Moses, it was through a miracle. Moses saw a bush that was on fire, but the bush wasn't burning up. So he went over to check it out, and God spoke to him in an audible voice from that bush. And he called Moses to be the deliverer of Israel to go to to Egypt and to bring the people out of slavery through miraculous signs and wonders called the Ten Plagues. Moses brought the people out of Egypt and they all came to this mountain called Mount Sinai and God gave his law, the Ten Commandments. He gave his law through his servant Moses to his people Israel at Mount Sinai. When he gave them the law, there was fire and smoke. The mountain shook. There was an earthquake. There was thunder and lightning, the sound of a trumpet and God's voice spoke audibly. It was miraculous, signs and wonders that pointed them to God. He gave them the law through his servant Moses to his people. And then he sent other servants, priests and prophets and kings like David and Samuel and Ezekiel and and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And you can read all their stories in the Old Testament. He sent his servants to his people so that they could teach them how to follow God. So they could call them to repent when they strayed away from God. And then God took another step in his salvation plan. He had previously sent his servants. Now he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Every single thing about Jesus' life was a miracle. From his virgin birth to his ability to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead back to life. Jesus was crucified, which paid the penalty of our sin. Because of Jesus' death and because of his blood on the cross, he fixed our broken relationship with God. God wanted to live in a relationship with us, but our sin separated us from God. But Jesus, through the cross, opened the door so that we could once again have a personal relationship with our Father in heaven. Jesus did all of that, and then the greatest miracle, he was resurrected on the third day, the first Easter Sunday. That was a major step in God's plan of salvation. Then we come to Acts chapter two, another part of God's salvation history. 
Just like before he gave his law to his people through his servant Moses, now he gives his spirit to his people through his son, Jesus. Before, it was all about the law, and it was all about his servant Moses. Now, it's all about God's Holy Spirit given through his Son, Jesus Christ, available to all. And before, he sent other servants, priests and prophets and kings. Now, he sends sons and daughters, you and me, to teach his people how to follow Jesus and to call us to repent when we stray. This is all part of God's plan to unfold salvation for the world, to fix what has gone wrong. And guess what? The church is God's plan A. Everything has built up to this moment in Acts chapter 2 when the church is born. God's people are the church. And this is the last stage in God's plan of salvation. There aren't any other steps along the way. The next step is for Jesus Christ to return physically, to return and establish his kingdom, to once and for all eliminate sin, to have total victory over darkness, and to bring his eternal kingdom to earth. That will literally be heaven on earth. That's the next step. We're like right before that. The church is God's plan A. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. Now what does that mean? What's the implication of that? Well, it means this. Church is so much more than we often think of it is. See, I I thought the best way to illustrate this would be to to talk about the difference between an aircraft carrier and a cruise ship. Many, many, many Christians today, I would say most of the Christians in the United States that I have had interaction with approach the church like a cruise ship. We're passengers on this ship. Now, your job is to make me comfortable. Your job is to make me happy. Your job is to meet all my needs. Your job is to serve me. Your job is to wait on me hand and foot. Your job is to give me whatever I ask for. Your job is to entertain me. Your job is to make me feel good. That's the way the church is. And if I come to a church and I don't like something or I don't feel good or I disagree with something or it makes me uncomfortable, I'm not staying. Why would I do that? This is a cruise ship and I'm a passenger. But the church is not a cruise ship. The church is an aircraft carrier. There are no passengers. We are the crew. All hands on deck. God God has called us to serve. He's given us his Holy Spirit to serve and to work and to do the work of the ministry. And and just like we are here not uh, not to be served but to serve, what what does an aircraft carrier do? It launches out planes to go out into enemy country and go on the offensive. And that's exactly what the church does. We are launched out of here to bring the hope of Christ and the gospel to a lost and dying world. We, we are launched out to take the offensive, to go into the world with the hope of the message of Jesus. And then, that's why it's so important for the church, because we'll run out of fuel if we're not connected to the church. So we have to come back, and we have to land, and we have to be refilled and refueled so we can be relaunched out. That's what the church is all about. It's God's plan to save the world. Now what does that mean? This is a question of the morning. What does this mean? Uh, It means this. We should expect to experience the power of God in our church. 
Just like we should be open to experience the power of God in our lives, we should expect to experience the power of God in our church. One commentary put it this way. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, wait for the Spirit. Wait for the Spirit. You can't do this without the Holy Spirit. We should be open to experiencing his uh, power in our lives. We should expect to experience his power in our church. So many Christians don't expect to feel the presence of God when they come to church. But that is what it's all about. Are you a skeptic? Or are you a seeker of truth? Do you expect to experience the presence of God when you come here on Sunday morning? The third implication from this story is this. The world, the spirit, the church, and the world. The world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Remember that old song? Now, I don't think it was an accident or coincidence that God poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when people from all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem to experience and celebrate this holiday. This was God's way of declaring definitively that his gospel is for all people. Salvation is for everyone who follows Jesus. Now, skeptics like to point their fingers at Christians and say Christianity is an exclusive religion because we say that Jesus is the only way to come to the Father. And that's exclusive, and that's mean. But actually, nothing could be further than the truth. Christianity is the most inclusive religious movement in the history of the world. No one is excluded from putting their faith in Jesus. Everyone, anyone, no matter what what, what color your skin is, no matter what country you're from, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter how rich you are, how poor you are, no matter how much education you have or how much education you don't have, no matter what's been done to you or what you have done in your past, no one is excluded from following Jesus. Christianity is not exclusive at all. It is open to anyone in the whole world who chooses to follow Jesus. It's not exclusive, it's very inclusive. But why do they say it's exclusive? Because we have to come to God through Christ? Well, here's the thing. Why do we think that we should get to approach God on our terms? We have to approach God on his terms. If, if you want to see the President of the United States, you don't just get to walk up to the President and be like, hey, Don, what's going on? Right? You can't, you can't just walk into the White House carrying a gun or having a backpack on or something like that. I mean, it doesn't work that way. If you want to see the President of the United States, you have to see him on his terms. Yeah, there, there are rules. There are what you can bring, what you can wear, what you can't bring in, what you, what, all this stuff, right? Why would it be any different with God? God is so much more important. God is so much higher. God is so much more glorified. Why would, why would we think that we get to approach God on our terms? We have to approach God on his terms, 
Christianity is not exclusive. It is inclusive for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Everyone is invited to come into a relationship with God through his son. Now, what does that mean? It means this. We should share our experience of God with others. The church is God's plan to save the world. Everyone in the world is welcome to come to faith in Christ, so we should share our experience of God's love and his power with others. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to the skeptics, it is not intolerant or unloving or unkind to tell people about the hope, the joy, the love, the freedom, and the eternal life that they have, they can have in Christ. How in the world could we say that it is intolerant and unkind and unloving to go to someone that I care about and say, I have hope like I never had before. I have been set free from things I never thought I could be set free from. I have joy even in the darkest night of the soul. And if I die, I will be raised to eternal life. And I have all this in Jesus. And I want to share that with you. How is that unkind? How is that intolerant? How is that unloving? To tell people about the good news that God saves sinners. We should share our experience of God with others. Let me wrap this up. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to respond with worship. Three questions by way of application. Are you open to experiencing God's power in your life? Do you expect to experience God's power in our church? And will you share your experience of God with others? That's what Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is all about. Let me pray.